You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Bean Kim, who is currently a research scientist at Google Brain. Her research focuses on designing high-performance machine learning methods that make sense to humans. Bean's PhD thesis is titled Interactive and Interpretable Machine Learning Models for Human-Machine Collaboration, which she completed in 2015 at MIT. We discuss her work on interpretability, including her work in the thesis on the Bayesian case model, an unsupervised clustering model that provides interpretable explanations motivated by case-based reasoning, and an interactive version that brings humans into the loop. We discuss connections with her subsequent work on black box interpretability methods, such as the testing with concept activation vectors, or TCAV method, that is now used in many real-world applications. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you would like to support the podcast, you can contribute a dollar at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. And a big thank you to all of those who have contributed so far. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Bean Kim with Interactive and Interpretable Machine Learning Models for Human-Machine Collaboration on the Thesis Review. thesis and your current work deals a lot with interpretability. So maybe to start, we could start with a fun question. Do you think that humans are interpretable? (laughs) This is a great question. It's some question that I get uh, quite a bit. I think to answer that question, we have to take a little bit of detour, which is uh, the, why are we asking that question? Well, we're asking that question because I work on interpretability and we want to ask whether machine learning models are interpretable and follow a question as well, is anything interpretable, right? So to ground that question, I want to first talk about what are the goals of interpretable machine learning? That's where it all started from. The goal to me is how we want to have a mechanism where we can reflect our values and knowledge when we want it. And we also want these tools to understand machine learning to be available for anybody, regardless of their background, like they have computer science degree or they don't, they maybe didn't even go to high school. We want these tools to be available for lay people. Mm -hmm. Now, if you keep those goals in mind and ask the same question, well, can human, what does that mean that humans are interpretable or not? Well, humans have this prior knowledge or ethical ethical consideration when they make decisions. They think about what they shouldn't do, uh, you know, keeping those values that they, they believe in in their decisions and their actions. And more importantly, we keep them, we keep them accountable. Like if you go to a doctor and doctor uh, hopefully does his or her best to make a decision. 
Uh, so in a way, those value reflection or incorporating the knowledge is kind of built into humans. We, in ideal case, we want to believe that they are doing their as best as they can and that reflects common human values, like you want to do the right thing. Now, that doesn't quite, that isn't quite true in interpretable machine learning, which is why we pursue these set of techniques that I've been pursuing to achieve those goals. So uh, I guess you're saying like with the human doctor, due to our kind of implicit trust in what the doctor's saying, they might not have to like exactly specify every little bit of their decision-making process. As long as we kind of agree on what a good rationale is for their decision, that's good enough. But then maybe like machine learning systems should be held to a higher standard. Exactly. Yeah. So doctors may not even know in every bits and bytes of reasoning behind their decisions, but they have knowledge and hopefully they are acting with good faith. Uh, But machine learning models, we don't have any of that. We don't even know if they know about ethics. We don't even know if they know gravity. We all have to program that because it's not something it was born with. So we have to hold them to the same standards as doctors or as other uh, decision makers that that, uh, makes decisions that affect other people's lives. We have to hold interpretable machine learning algorithms to the same standards. And that's the goal of interpretable machine learning. So then maybe let's go back to before your PhD. Could you just talk a bit about your background and how you got interested in the idea of doing a PhD? Yeah, uh, I have. I, f- I feel like I have an interesting, maybe slightly non-common background. Um, so I was a mechanical engineer in my undergrad back in South Korea, Seoul National University. And the reason I wanted to do mechanical engineering was because I love robots. I remember in my fourth grade, NASA just launched the Pathfinder robot to, to Mars and that was like something that I was obsessed with. Um, I wanted to work at NASA. That was my goal. Um, I didn't have any mentors who who told who could have told me that. Oh, you know, you could make the brain of the robot. Uh, so I didn't know. I thought, oh, to work on robots, you have to make the body of the robots. So I was like, I'm going to make the body. Well, what do you do? Well, you need like bolts and cutting machines and things to make a robot. So that's mechanical engineering. So I went to mechanical engineer for my undergrad. But slowly in my undergrad program, I realized that actually I find it more fun to design the brain side of the robot. It could, I can do it faster. I can do it uh, a lot more. I, I can try a lot more ideas as opposed to making a hardware, which is constrained by how fast I can cut and make things. Uh, so I w- came to MIT having m- uh, minded that I want to design brains for robots. That's kind of how I started working on artificial intelligence. I try. Um, I worked on the SLAM algorithm, which is means simultaneous localization and mapping. If you have like vacuum cleaner, uh, iRobot vacuum cleaner, some of them is u- using this type of algorithm to navigate your house. Um, so that was fun. I did my master's at MIT on SLAM. But then after that, I felt like something's not quite lining up. I was excited about robots, but it wasn't something that I, uh, or SLAM algorithm in particular, but I felt like I need to have some, a little more perspective of the world. Uh, so I departed 
the program and worked at an industry for two years. I worked at MathWorks, which makes Mallet, in Natick, Massachusetts. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I gained a whole bunch of perspectives. Uh, and then when I returned PhD, I was looking for some topic that I just couldn't stop thinking about. I wanted to. I wanted my research topic to completely align with what I want. Uh, what kind of research I want to become. And I want to become a research researcher whose research is relevant to people, not just someone writes papers and uh, writes ton of papers and uh, work on something that wouldn't see the light of the day until I until the end of my life. Uh, I wanted to do something kind of real. Uh, so after all that searching, I met with Julie Shaw, who is uh, MIT faculty. Uh, and we really hit it off of uh, just conversations about what we want to do, what kind of research we want to do. So then I decided to come back for PhD program and and decided to hold this line of research. So did you then move away from robotics because at least at the time it didn't seem like one of those areas that you could um, do something like concrete? I think. Robotics can be very, very concrete too. I just didn't have a a topic that was completely resonating with me at the time. I think there are plenty of topics of ro- robot in robotics that are very real too. But it just happened that this particular uh, topic that I was interested in wasn't quite. Actually, the first, very first work that I did uh, was related to robot because I wanted to kind of combine this AI with ro- physical robots, but focusing more on the algorithm part of the robot, how robots make decisions as opposed to how robots navigate, perceive the world, or manipulate objects. So it's a slightly different flavor of things that makes sense. I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then getting that work experience, did you, like while you were working at MathWorks, did you always have in the back of your mind that you wanted to move to research? I did. Um, I th- I love uh, creative work. Uh, MathWorks was also creative work and, you know, managing people and uh, working with customers is it requires creativity. But I love the aspect of computer science where you can make anything from nothing. In other words, in robot, in robotics, like mechanical engineering side, you need material, you need pipes, you need, you know, saw, you need, you know, cutting machines. But in computer science, in my mind, you can just code stuff up and run it. Uh, it doesn't cost you anything. You can try as many ideas as you want, regardless of what time of the day, because you have a computer, you write some stuff and run it and see what happens. And that freedom really appealed to me. So then when you started the PhD and you were talking over these research ideas, was it about things that were eventually in your thesis or were you interested in different things at that time? Yeah, yeah. So it 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 started. It is kind of in my thesis, um, and and I'll tell you what I mean. <laughs> so the first discussion I had with Julie was uh, that she has this project with Lincoln Lab on developing robots for rescuing missing people, missing person, mm-hmm. uh, and it would it was going to be in collaboration with Lincoln Lab, where they are partners with FEMA, the uh, Massachusetts uh, Federal Emergency Agency, to incorporate AI in their algorithm. So a person goes missing, 
and you have some terrain information of the area, you have some prior knowledge about where missing person tends to head 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 to go. Do they go down downhills or uphills? And given all this, we want to build a robot or robotics algorithm to um, help the rescuers the, to, to find this person faster, basically. Um, mm -hmm. So that was real, super real. It has to do with robots and it has to do with AI. And I was like, this is, uh, this is like as best as it can get awesome. So I signed up for that. Uh, so my first chapter of my thesis is actually about developing algorithm, a Bayesian model that can help robots to make a better decision given a prior from expert, expert rescuer person. So if a rescuer person says, I know the missing person usually goes to find water, then I can incorporate that knowledge in Bayesian model. And the idea is that robot knows that, robot knows what prior, what experts would do, and then it would make decisions accordingly. Um, now, now what happened with that project is that a Boston Marathon bombing happened in uh, in the in the midst of my PhD, and in fact, I was in FEMA's uh, headquarter during that marathon. Uh, they invited Julie and I to observe their operation to see what are the bottlenecks and interview people from the dispatchers, uh, EMS, and um, uh, state police, and everyone. So it was kind of was going to be a fun visit to FEMA. Mm -hmm. But what ended up happening was that the, the, the unfortunate, very unfortunate incident happened. Um, and we kind of were, uh, we were in shock and we we're just quietly sitting in the back of the office where everyone is scrambling. And there was uh, uh, like FBI showed up at some point to help them. Uh, they forgot to kick us out until like half an hour later. <laughs> so <laughs> until we got kicked out, we were actually able to observe their whole operation and what goes down. Uh, and I was, I honestly was pretty impressed the way that they are dealing with that crisis. Um, but uh, what that meant for my thesis was that uh, now the topic became very sensitive uh, for, for Lincoln Lab to share any data with us. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to get any data or any of their training information from them until I think like towards my end of PhD. So I had to kind of pivot oh, wow. my topic theme to be a bit more hypothetical. So my first chapter of my thesis talks about this like disaster rescue scenario where there are different rooms and there are two robots going off to rescue people um, and how the robot incorporates the domain expert's knowledge into the algorithm. The, the first section is about this um, kind of taking in plans or taking in discussions, conversations, and then getting some plan out of it, right? Right, exactly. And we, we actually had an actual robot, uh, a demo video, actual robot running around and executing those, those algorithms. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. But after that, I, I again had this uh, idea that, you know, machine learning algorithms without hardware limitation can do so much. And I can actually go faster with my ideas without the hardware. And after that, I kind of focused uh, singly on machine learning algorithms. Do you ever think back to that problem though? It does seem like a interesting problem. I, I guess like going from the text to some more structured form. Do you think that it would be easier to do this nowadays maybe with more powerful NLP models? 
That's a great question. I do think so. Um, haven't tried anything similar to that yet, but text summarization, like summarizing doctor's notes, this is something that a lot of people work on in NLP area. And with BERT and GPT-3 and all that good embeddings, it's probably a lot easier. That made me think, you know, back then, I did not expect to see this much development in, in NLP uh, in, in 2012 or 13 that I was working on this. It, this would have been a dream what we have now. Yeah, yeah. And then after that, <clears throat> your thesis has these two different parts of the Bayesian case model and then an interactive version of it. Could you just talk about the backstory behind starting to work on, on this Bayesian case model? Yeah, of course. So Bayesian case model uh, came from thinking about, again, the, the rescue, uh, rescue experts. Um, whenever I work on interpretability methods, I start with humans because the goal of your any interpretability method is to be consumed by humans. So you have to start thinking about, well, who are my users? What are their knowledge level? What do they want? How do they use, use to think about the problem? Uh, and the, it turns out that there is huge research on studying experts, especially firefighters. And it turns out that firefighters, the way they think is based on examples. So when they have very time, they have very small amount of time to make a decision of, okay, who's going to go into that building with fire, eight story building, and how are we going to approach this problem? And they have like split of second uh, to make that decision. So uh, psychologists were interested in how are they doing this? It turns out that they use what's called uh, case-based reasoning. And that is when they see a new fire, they think about all the past experiences that they had and decide, okay, which one is the most similar case or most different? And how can I apply how can I apply a slightly different solution to what I did before to make to solve this problem? This is pretty well studied topic. And that's where the case based Bayesian case model came about. I thought, okay, well, if they are familiar in thinking examples, we should give them examples to explain the machine learning model. So this model is about unsupervised clustering model using uh, uh, graphical models where you give me a bunch of data and I'm going to cluster them. And let's say you have three clusters. I'm going to get you a prototype, which is like prototypical example of each cluster. Then I will also get you some features in that cluster that best represents the commonality within that cluster. So for example, if you have recipe data, uh, you have, let's say, taco cluster and you have uh, Italian food cluster, then your, uh, sorry, Mexican food and Italian food cluster, then the prototypical example of Mexican food would be taco, but it wouldn't be, uh, let's see, what is uh, sour cream, uh, the, the, the important features might be like avocado or, or like salsa, not something that's specific to taco, but something more gen genetic to Mexican food. Um, and for Italian Italian food, it might be spaghetti, and it, the feature would be tomato sauce, uh, maybe not noodles, uh, just tomato sauce. 
uh, I like the image you have in your thesis of it's like of these different faces mm-hmm. and they have like different colors and different types of smiles and yeah, maybe I can tweet that out at that picture or something. But uh, <laughs> so then at the time, um, this Bayesian case model is kind of approaching interpretability from the angle of like building the interpretability into the model through this Bayesian formulation. Mm -hmm. So how did you decide to go down that line of thinking versus saying like, take any trained model and I don't know, try to identify some clusters using this already trained model somehow? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Uh, Now I work more on post-hoc interpretability method and I can tell you, I, I, I will tell you why. So when I started my PhD, uh, I had all the freedom in the world to build a model from scratch. I had all the freedom in the world to decide what kind of data I want to use. So it is. it seemed uh, obvious to me, if you want the interpretability and you don't want any discrepancy between your explanation and what model is doing, the golden standard uh, is to build a model that is inherently interpretable. And this is something that my thesis committee member, Cynthia Rudin, uh, wrote a paper about. And I do think that that is true. Uh, so, so, so I did that and with the BCM, Bayesian case model. But then when I joined Google, I realized that there are so many models at Google that many, many hundreds of engineers working on for decades and I'm not going to just go in as a fresh Googler and say, hey, I'm going to build you a new model uh, and it's going to be interpretable. It's going to be awesome. Can I replace your 12-year worth of model? <laughs> That's not going to happen, right? So then I decided, well, then you might have a this, this decision between not having interpretability at all versus having some post-hoc interpretability method. Uh, so that's when I started going down the path of Okay, given if I can't change the model, what can I do? And more importantly, what are the potential mistakes or discrepancy that we have to pay attention as you apply post-hoc methods? So my work after uh, my uh, PhD involves, you know, creating a technique like TCAV that gives you explanation having uh, a trained model and without changing them at all but also a set of family of tests that we develop to test these post-hoc methods. Sanity check work that uh, we published uh, first in 2019, I think, and we just have another version in 20, uh, New Reps in 2020. These set of methods is about testing, kind of putting interpretability methods in stress test and see how it does, how, how it performs. If we try to break these methods, and if it breaks, we better know that. If we don't know that, then your interpretation might be fragile, might be, uh, uh, might get you know, vulnerable to attacks. So those are kind of two family of uh, work that I've been focusing on, post-hoc methods and how to break them. I see. So when you're talking about breaking them, have you come up with automatic ways of doing this automatic ways of breaking it yeah huh Mm, you know it's good news and bad news maybe uh the bad news is that we didn't have to even try to automatically break it a lot of these methods are already easily breakable so for instance the sanity check work uh 
is simply if you randomize your neural network, train the neural network, what it does is just, you know, setting it to initial parameter as if the training never happened. Then you apply some of the interpretability methods and we show that, well, for a random neural network, these methods pretend that it's not random. It gives you something very reasonable. So if I give you a bird picture and you run it through in a train network, you see a bird in your saliency map, then you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You randomize the network, you run it through again, you still see a bird. And this is true for so many methods that was so shocking that we had to, uh, this is a, a clearly very low bar test to pass, but we are so shocked that we kind of stopped ourselves there and ask ourselves, whoa, what just happened? We need to get to the bottom of this. Um, and then that's where we are. So that's bad news. Good news is that I guess there is a lot of work left to do for everyone, and including myself, to raise this bar. Let's not just stop at this um, kind of what I call silly testing. This test, we should have ran it many, many years ago, not 2019, to check ourselves that we're going heading to the right direction. Uh, and let's raise the bar. Raise the bar as we go forward to create more rigorous testing. Uh, coming up with evaluation metrics, which I have done in a couple of other work, follow-up work of mine, none of these evaluation metrics are going to be perfect, but we as a community have to keep thinking about what metrics that we want to aim for as a community or what set of metrics we want to agree upon. Yeah, so so this is referring to some work you did on the saliency maps, right? Mm-hmm. Aren't attention maps also infamous for... Uh, people see kind of what they want to see. Absolutely. Yes. And <laughs> these are incredibly important things that I always talk about in, in, in my talks. Um, humans have confirmation bias. And that's why you mean by humans want to see what they want to see. And we see this, unfortunately, everywhere in the world, like political environment in this country. Uh, and this confirmation bias is so strong and really implemented in 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 our minds, you really can't do anything about it. So whenever we evaluate interpretability method, or even even just thinking about does this is this method that I just created is this work? Uh, you have to be super careful in making answering that question. So often, what I recommend doing is. You come up with a data set where you know the ground truth of what the answer should be. And you can just create, synthetically create this because you just make up a data set of, with whatever features, whatever combinations or distributions that you want. And then test your method against that uh, so that you can circumvent your own confirmation bias because you want the method to work. And it will look like it's working unless you do something more rigorous. Right, I see. I guess with the saliency work, you were showing that something didn't work. If you look at a method that does work, like for example, TCAV, is that the approach you took to convincing yourself, convincing others that TCAV worked? Or yeah, like how 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 are you confident that the interpretability is uh, reliable and accurate? Mm. So there are two questions, interesting questions you're asking. How did I do it for TCAV, and how do, how are we sure in general? Uh, so first. I love I, I love this experiment in TCAF paper um, that I did. It's really simple, but I, I just find it uh, 
uh, I just like it. What we did is uh, we, so, so briefly, TCAF work is about postdoc method. And the goal is to explain supervi- supervised classification networks uh, in terms of concepts. What is concepts? Well, concepts are just high level, that, that's one level above features that humans use to communicate. So for example, chairs or uh, the dog hair or the snout that dog has, these are all type of concepts. So the TCAV is best explained by contrasting with saliency methods, which uses low level features to explain. So saliency methods, if you give me a picture, I'm going to give you each pixel and their importance numbers as a method of explanation. So you see a bird picture and you kind of get this bird picture back with highlighted different pixels highlighted. That's the saliency map. Now, in contrast, what TCAP is trying to do is, well, humans don't think in pixels. So instead of pixels, why don't we give them something that they can understand? Like, oh, here's a bird picture. Let's say the feather is important. Oh, the brick color was important and so on. So that's a TCAV. So now going back to your original question about how do I know this this works? So the thing that we did to test this theory is uh, creating a synthetic data set where this synthetic data set is consists of a picture and a little caption on the left bottom corner. So if it's a picture of a cab, I say I wrote down CAB in the bottom left corner in programmatically. And I did that for many, many classes like cucumber, soccer balls, uh, for many, many pictures. Now, uh, what I uh, I can train any model such that the model is trained or encouraged to look at the caption or the image by doing the following. I can train a model if I train a model that has random captions. Let's say the data set has cap, cap picture, but it, it writes cucumber in the bottom or soccer ball picture with cap caption in the bottom. Then the model is cannot associate the class with the caption, right? Because it just doesn't make sense. Then I know because I gave that data set to this model, I know that model should not look at the caption. Uh, and on contrast, I can give it a perfect caption. And I know that model might also look at the caption. So having these two, and in this uh, synthetic data set, the concept is caption or the image. So I can test uh, any model that the many models that I built with TCAV and say, okay, I know this model looks at, does not look at caption. Now TCAV, tell me, is it looking at the caption? And test that in many, many different models with different distributions of this randomness. Going back to the, to the thesis, in the Bayesian model you had here, like you mentioned giving pixels as what we're like giving as the interpretability unit. Here in the thesis, you were using um, the different like features and then the different clusters themselves. Mm-hmm. Are, are those still used in uh, certain methods today? Or, or like, do you think that something about this probabilistic formulation would prevent some of those unreliability issues? Yes and no. Uh, I mean, any ev- everything. I think all the methods that we exam in our work uh, is sort of is proven to be, you know, working in in with different goals in mind. So it is. I want to say that you know, even if we say, well, this method doesn't work 
doesn't pass this test doesn't mean that it's not useful. So I'll give you an example why I'm saying this. There were some methods that show, well, we when we show this picture to doctors, doctors do X job better. In my mind, if you can, if you achieve that, if that was your goal and you achieve that end goal, which is helping doctors, then that's good. We just don't know how it's doing it, but it is still useful. Um, but anyway, going back to your question, is the probabilist method uh, kind of of can avoid these uh, uh, pitfalls? Um, yes and no. Uh, so for Bayesian case model, it still it is using feature based methods in in the sense that when it does the clustering, the information it uses are the features. So if it's a recipe, it uses the ingredients. It's got the sour cream, salsa, and uh, what else? Carnitas. Um, so having those small uh, units as the ingredients for clustering, it sort of has that problem. Perhaps it has that problem as well. However, it tries to uh, be better at just independent feature clustering by trying to learn the prototype. So what do I mean by that? Well, so let's say, so in, in this BCM, you have to pick a prototype for each cluster, right? It's going to be either taco or spaghetti. You can't pick a random uh, dish that doesn't exist. So for example, you can't make, I don't know, spaghetti taco. I don't know if I'm sure that's a thing somewhere in the world, but <laughs> you can't. Some college student has made it at some point. Probably. <laughs> His name, Sean. <laughs> No. <laughs> um, so let's say those things don't exist. Then uh, your BCM cannot pick that dish as a prototype. It's just because it simply doesn't exist. So BCM is sort of skewing its decision uh, based on the real distribution, meaning like things that actually exist. It has to pick one of them. And by doing that, it's kind of incorporating the dependency between features it knows it has to pick sour cream and it's likely to pick salsa if you it already picked the sour cream and not the tomato sauce. The prototypes can be useful, but they could also be limiting in some sense. Yeah, and it, any of these approaches, like whether it's prototype-based or feature-based or concept-based, there's no one golden answer. So I emphasize in a lot of applications that when I work in at Google with product teams, to think about, just start from the human again. Like think about what your users would be most effective. Uh, what kind of format do they really want? And perhaps more importantly, how do we help them avoid the confirmation bias? Is this format a good medium for them to also surface problems in, your, in the model and in their thoughts and or in the method itself? Do you think that instead of being driven by applications, it's possible to just think about like, okay, how can we improve maybe a model better to be more interpretable? And then when people in practice see that this model has this interpretable, interpretable property, then that might actually open up new applications. Does that actually ever happen or is that just uh, wishful thinking? <laughs> you think, when you say applications, do you mean like new like business, like new, what, what, are, what, are, what, 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 what would that look like? Yeah, that is a good question. Yeah, I, I guess maybe like if you had, um, if you had some text-based system, mm -hmm. 
and it was able to tell you it was able to tell you like very accurate accurate clusters that were popping up over time Mm -hmm. then yeah maybe you could start some startup which says like okay here's like the different events that are occurring in these different areas just that five second idea right there was kind of generated based on the capabilities of the model Mm -hmm. versus saying like i have this goal here's the interpretability properties that i need for it Mm, that's interesting you know I think it is possible now. I think about now. I hear in your examples totally. Uh, you know, Bay Area is one of the <laughs> core place where these ideas uh, actually come 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 to life. I bet people can do that. Uh, I personally prefer approaches to start uh, with the application and with users in mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, for example, TCAV had this um, after having met with lots of product teams, I came up with TCAV because I could see the missing block. And that missing block was that product teams are trying to communicate with users and those users may not have a computer science degree. Well, we Mm -hmm. computer scientists know that computers are digital and it sees a picture with pixels. But you know what? Not everyone in the world knows that. What is this thought all over my picture? Like, what does that mean, right? It doesn't mean anything. So mm-hmm. that gap uh, of, you know, we have to translate one machine's thing, which is in pixels, to everyday human language so that we can actually get to those users uh, with, without having them going to college for computer science. Yeah, I mean, I, I had the feeling that a lot of it was driven from applications that I figured I would try to, just play devil's advocate for this this other direction. <laughs> yeah, no, if you have ideas, let me know. <laughs> so you said that during your PhD, you had this uh, ability to kind of choose whatever model you wanted. Uh, and then nowadays, maybe we have like such a large set of developed models that aren't interpretable. So it makes sense to build these black box methods. Do you think that building interpretability into the model is still a fruitful direction though and that like maybe in 10 years we might have a new set of methods that have some new built-in capabilities absolutely yes um i think what uh, this might be far-fetched example but you know how um i used to work on autonomous cars in mit mm-hmm. uh darpa robotics challenge is something that i i uh, worked on follow project of that huge uh effort which is to make a car that can drive by itself now, one of the questions that we had when we worked on that project was that, well, what if half of the cars on the road is auto- autonomous and half of them are not? So what do we do in that transition? Because that's when things get pretty uh, difficult. Some cars can't talk to each other, but some cars, there's like a ghost car going by and you don't know if it's there because it doesn't have the capacity. So how do we safely transition to autonomous car era? We haven't yet, but you know, maybe it's coming. And similar thing, I think, might happen in in the world of machine learning. Right now, we have models that are mostly uninterpretable. So postdoc method is there to help them to kind of in this transition area uh, uh, era to help them to be used responsibly to for it to reflect our values and reflect our knowledge. But perhaps at some point in ten years or more. Uh, these models are used 
then used to too many areas in life and to affecting too many people's lives that machine learning researchers or practitioners realize, you know what, we really got to build this capability inside of the model. So let's just slowly switch into a completely inherently interpretable model. That is possible. Now, do I think that that will happen within my lifetime? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it is, you know, sometimes just easy to build a high performance model without thinking about too many goals in mind, right? We've seen transformer models or GPTs, uh, three and other complex models that, or, or architecture search, uh, that's another ex good example of uh, having kind of one simple goal and, and just kind of get there first. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's going to be harder road, but it's not impossible. Yeah, that's a good point that maybe for raw performance, you can choose some baseline and optimize towards that. I mean, like transformers were really aimed at translation baselines and they turned out to be widely applicable. Whereas I guess like kind of what you've been arguing is that for interpretability, it's usually a lot more complicated. You have to look at specific applications. So it might make sense to develop these high performance models and then do the black box interpretability methods that are driven by the applications. Yeah, that will be uh, a solution. I do want to emphasize though, that if you can, and your model is influencing someone's lives, like you're, it's been used for helping judges or in doctor's office, I th really think that one should pay great attention to uh, building interpretable model first, if they can, because you're 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 dealing with someone's lives here. It's not just a research paper. It's not just some pretty idea. You are you might change someone's lives, and even better question might be asking yourself. You know. If, if this doctor is using some random machine learning model, oh, but it works for most of the people, would you want your mom to go to this doctor's office and get, get the diagnosis and like maybe put on operation? No, hell no, you know, I, I wouldn't like that. So if you wouldn't like that, then maybe we should put a lot more attention to trying to build one uh, before you just go for high performance only. Because performance metric is fundamentally flawed already, right? You're thinking about accuracy of over what people uh, you're thinking about false positive rate or for whom, you know, is your data unbiased so that this metric is actually unbiased? Well, we don't know. These all metrics are, this is a single metric that's, that's, uh, that's not perfect. Um, and I want to add when I, when I say all this um, too, is that you, you can always, there's this discussion uh, or myth that, interpretable models always perform less well than uninterpretable model. This is completely not true. And you can, there's a living examples after examples by lots of researchers in the field uh, that if you put enough effort in building a model that has the explanation built into it, then you can totally do it. But if you just tell me, well, compare neural network to linear classifier, well, you know, you didn't customize this they, this model to the data set that you're interested in. Linear model is just a linear model. So of course, if you compare those two, linear models gonna is likely to perform less. But the struct, if you build a structure in the model with with careful attention and good understanding of the domain, then 
99% of the time, you can totally build a model that is both interpretable and high performance. And this has been showing over and over again. The next version of Bayesian case model, at least the next one that was in the thesis, is this interactive Bayesian case model. Mm -hmm. So was this also driven by in the back of your mind or maybe concretely you were still working on this this uh, safety application or robotics application you had in mind? Yeah, it kind of came all together. This was like a, so when I started my thesis, I wanted to establish communication between robots and humans. Here, robot meaning, you know, AI machine, uh, not just the physical robot. Now, interactive Bayesian case model, sorry, the Bayesian case model is kind of one-way communication. It's just robot telling human what it thinks. Now, I wanted to close this loop by saying, well, humans should also be able to talk back to the robot what it thinks, what he or she thinks. And that's where this IBCM, interactive BCM came about. Um, but the application that we we ended up doing is uh, for MOOC, the online course or, or, or education domain. The goal was to let's help TAs on grading computer science homeworks, like Python class, you know, kid, the students are writing uh, sorting algorithms, sort, sorting function. Let's help T TAs to grade them better uh, and give them better feedback. Where did that come from? Well, it actually came from my chat with my friend Alina Glassman, who is the second author author uh, of, of this work. We we're just chatting one day because we sit in the same building in Stata at MIT. And she was telling me this uh, overcode, which is a framework for interactively uh, mark, interactively representing in a really nice way Python functions from from students uh, with the goal that to help TAs to view uh, homework submissions better. And then we kind of started thinking together, like, hmm, wait, like, can we actually do some clustering on this Python the, the submissions and see, like, okay, these set of students are always making this mistake. These set of students are always making these mistakes. Because then TAs can go into the class next time and say, hey, guys, 50% of you did this, so don't do that. Or maybe 10% of you did this, and that was really great. Let's do that more. It just gives them more power as opposed to, you know, going get them going through hundreds of submissions one by one by hand. And by fifth, 50th submission, they forgot everything <laughs> what they graded the first 51. So that's kind of, it was a, a completely by accident. I see. And then the, the idea here is to be able to adjust the prototypes or the features based on what the, I guess, grader would expect to see in the output. Yeah. So the goal is, you know, it would start from just regular vanilla BCM where we cluster a bunch of Python uh, homework submissions. And then the TA can interactively change prototype uh, submissions. Like they saw this one thing and they suspect that a lot of folks probably made the same mistake. And then the TA can update that as like, I want this to be prototype of cluster one. And then you re-cluster mm -hmm. everything. The teachers can also up, like, um, select a feature. Feature here meaning a keyword in, in the program, like. If it's if this was Python, but if it's a C plus plus, it, it teacher can select int. Let's type information, um, one keyword in that in that homework, and say, okay, I want to cluster with this prototype, but I want this keyword int to be most important feature. Now reshuffle and recluster, and show me what the reclustering looks like. 
So then did you sell this to all the TAs at MIT? <laughs> you know, all the intellectual property, you know, MIT owns it all. <laughs> so I own oh. nothing <laughs> from, uh, I, I think this is pretty commonly true. So no, we did not sell it. We weren't trying to sell it at all. We actually were uh, <laughs> trying to convince TAs to use this. So what we did, um, I don't think we quite get got there um, because obviously we're not going to maintain, uh, we won't be able to maintain this, this properly. But we did uh, really interesting user studies where we recruited a bunch of TAs who taught this class during IAP. Uh, it's a Python introduction to Python class at MIT. And mm -hmm. the class had many multiple year accumulated homeworks, which we used as a data set. And these TAs know these homeworks inside out. Uh, so they're really good users to work with. Um, and we gathered a bunch of them. I forgot the exact number I had, uh, 20 something, maybe uh, uh, something in that order. And we have them use this tool and got some feedback. Uh, you know, we were more interested in like, what more can we do than, than what is working? But overall, the feedback was very positive because you know, there's nothing like this existing yet back then anyway. So then this aspect of human in the loop or interactivity, did you, does this still play a role in your research as well? Absolutely. Um, my couple of recent papers think, thinks more about this, this uh, human in the loop. And in fact, TCAV work is kind of motivated by solving one piece of that puzzle. In human in the loop, um, TCAP is you know again is a one-way communication model telling human what it thinks. But mm -hmm. I, in order to have a human meaningfully in the loop, we needed a method where it doesn't require much from that human, mm -hmm. and that means we the machine has to talk in a language that this human can understand, and we have to kind of match to the human as opposed to convincing human that you need to learn computers. Right, right. That just doesn't work, right? Uh, so the TCAP was motivated by that idea of human in the loop, although it doesn't close, close the loop quite yet, but though we have some internal work where we are investigating that a lot. Um, on the academic side, uh, since then, uh, I have a couple of publications on one kind of studying psychology aspect behind humans looking at explanations. So this was um, a publication at HCOMP last year. Was it last year? Yeah, last year or two years ago. Time flies. I don't know. The COVID uh, with the times are times are just an abstract concept now. Um, this the paper one of the best paper award at HCOMP, uh, which is HCI conference, where we think about whether uh, what kind of feature factors are important in explanation. Is it the length of explanation? Is it the number of explanations? Is it some the, the cognitive chunking, which is a fancy name for uh, high-level concepts in, in your explanation? Is the number of the cognitive chunk matter? We did huge-scale uh, Tucker-based experiment to answer some of these questions. And then based on those results, does that kind of inform the type of machine learning models that you want to develop then? Um, I think what that study taught us is uh, more like a starting point of 
how more of these type of studies that has to be done. Uh, what we learned was that, of course, length matters, and apparently cognitive chunks doesn't matter as much. So for the human, in, in other words, humans are good at parsing these high-level concepts. You can give them a little of a few, and they will be fine. So it informs kind of you know advocates for concept-based explanation a bit more, but but then again, um, my golden standard for evaluating any of the methods that that people are thinking about is to have the actual concrete user in the loop to to evaluate. Uh, and this study that I was just telling you about is kind of abstract uh, problem domain. We wanted to just kind of study general properties of human. So to answer your question directly, it, it was yes and no. I had just this idea of like, okay, concepts are a good, good direction, but at the same time, it's not uh, black and white. There will be gray areas where our findings in that study in some applications, we would have to redo the study to really understand the problem. I saw this talk that you gave and TCAV was used with doctors. And I was wondering that what happens if the doctor asks for or provides some examples and gets some interpretation. And then it basically shows that the model doesn't work. Like, do we actually want a kind of cyclic process where the doctor sees something that doesn't work and then we then adjust the model and hopefully over time it'll kind of converge to a agreeable model. And so maybe like TCAV is one step of this process. Absolutely. Yes. That's something that I, tried something similar in, in my internal work at Google where um, doctors advocate for certain concepts and we retrain the model so that it matches that uh, concept. Um, another interesting venue though in TCAV, well, actually when you said, uh, would we actually want that though if the model doesn't work, uh, do, we, do we want to know that? Absolutely. I think part of uh, goal of interpretable method is to surfacing models that are bogus. I think that's one of the core, perhaps even more than just expl explaining the model, uh, that the core goal is that. It seems like that use case is popping up in a lot of papers these days. Correct. Showing, yeah. <laughs> showing these like spurious correlations. And... Mm -hmm. There's a beautiful paper came out last year from Nature uh, where uh, I'm blanking who did this work, but it was it was medical folks. Um, they showed that when they had a deep neural network model that can classify a certain type of bone disease, and it was doing really well, and they were like, oh, this is great. But then when they did more farther testing, they realized that the mechanism, the, me the machine learning model was just reading off of model number of the machine that took the x-ray uh, and just the the basically surfacing, you know, which hospital took this this, and where is that hospital? What is the people around that hospital? So completely well, yeah. bogus model that that people pro people probably didn't know before uh, before they try to understand what the model is actually doing. So it's an incredibly mm -hmm. important topic, and a lot of folks are working on this. I guess, like looking back. What do you think of, of this Bayesian case model and this interactive Bayesian case model now? Do you think that maybe like with today's methods, a lot of these Bayesian models are getting neuralized, neuralized <laughs> and they're maybe more powerful. Do you think that um, that's like something interesting to do with these types of models or? Yeah, 
I am uh, kind of, I'm, I'm Bayesian in the sense that I, you know, the phrase that I like to use is like, I go to church in Easter. You know, I, I will use this method as long as it serves the, the purpose. But I, I'm mm -hmm. not like fundamentally advocating, oh, it always has to be Bayesian, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think the idea of Bayesian statistics in general is that the fact that you have prior you can incorporate human domain expert knowledge within that prior. And that says so much. And in fact, it doesn't really contradict a lot with non-Bayesian folks, what they're trying to do. Well, what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to build in a structure in your model so that it sort of makes sense to you, right? Even, you know, Bird on transformer model or, or to vag, they humans design this cost function thinking that, oh, well, if model can do this task, well, then I think it will give me a good word embeddings. So I think there's great lessons to learn about having that human structure knowledge built into the model. And that's kind of my takeaway of, of Bayesian approaches. Will it, um, one of the worries that I had, and I, I think I still uh, have it, although some Bayesian uh, experts might disagree, is that uh, the, the BCM itself doesn't scale very well. Uh, it is all exponential family and the MCMC Gibbs sampling method inference algorithm that we used is, is, is good. Uh, but uh, if, you know, BCM is a very simple model. If you have a more complex problem, you might have very, very uh, complex graphical model. Uh, will the inference measure up? I, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe there is are ways to do that, but I'm not sure if um, if uh, it will all scale up as well. It did work well, at least for this application you had at, at MIT. Yeah, well, as a PhD thesis, it worked out well for for, <laughs> for for me. I think it was a great uh, kind of a show example of what can be done if once you if you can build a new model and you have psychology literature uh, supports your basis for your model, uh, which was the prototype based, then you know that's, that's, that's kind of as good as it can get uh, with, within that problem. Although we didn't have you know, actual application that uses BCM, right? That would have been even better. And then, um, yeah, I guess after the PhD, We've, we've talked about some of your current research, but um, I guess some people will completely change research directions after their PhD. How did you know that you wanted to keep focusing on this interpretability aspect? I just couldn't think of anything else I want to work on. <laughs> uh, I, got this I get this question more often now that I've been in this field for a while. And... Um, I love how this topic relates to actual problems. And at Google, not only I work with product teams who have these questions about how is how how is my model working? Like, and that's their their daily problem. That's the question that they ask every day. And the fact that I can offer something is just incredibly rewarding. And in addition to that, we're living in an era where the government and policymakers are trying to come up with a set of guide guidelines to to uh, grow healthy 
ecosystem in in machine learning world because uh, these things get used a lot in real life and just talking to actual policy decision makers who are thinking about this problem uh, is also incredibly rewarding and insightful and you know motivates my research uh, that these are and the Google's AI best practices in interoperability that's something that I and, and Maya Gupta wrote uh, and published and AI principles is something that Google is pursuing. And those things are very, very real. Uh, I don't know how more real I can get um, than than that working on something that I love. Yeah, that's cool to hear. And especially to go back and see, it seems like this stayed with you that you wanted to have some impact through your research, starting off with maybe robotics. And um, so nowadays you're able to do that through this interpretability research. I'm hoping to, yeah. I think that guided my career decision too, that um, I never really thought about becoming a faculty. I never did. I, I have. Uh, I grew up in a family where uh, nobody was academic. Uh, and so I didn't really have that. that when I went to PhD, I went to got PhD because I was it was fun, not because I had like, you know, I want to become a uh, professor. I, I just met some people who, who are uh, going to fact PhD to, to go to academia. I chose Google uh, because it was so real. I can, I get a lot of energy out of the fact that product teams are using this, my crazy idea that I came up one day, TCAV, and they're using it every day. And I'm like, huh, isn't that cool? One of the most difficult questions of the show is always uh, picking a piece of advice. So if you had advice to maybe to a new researcher starting out, something that comes to mind? Yeah, sure. Um, you know how like there's a lot of pressure to pick a topic that you love and, and like, oh, you have to be really passionate about it. I believe that there are there will be many topics that you'll be passionate about. It's not just one. It's not like a destiny. I don't think so. And at first, when you encounter that topic, you may not know it immediately. But as time passes, you will know whether it aligns well with the kind of what kind of person you want to be, what kind of impact you want to have in the world. Like I'd like to think that you know when I. Uh, when it's when the time comes for me to 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 end end uh, end of my life, I want to think like, hmm, you know, because I lived, the world is a little bit better place, and that's was something that I keep going back to. I want to be net positive in the world, um, and I think there are many ways I could be net positive, and I hope I will be net positive. And same for you, you know, you don't have to know it immediately. Uh, but you have to try a lot of things to figure out what makes sense to you, what makes you happy, what makes you wake up in the middle of the night and think about it and kind of happy and you can kind of keep going. Uh, don't stress out too much. It will come to you. And if it doesn't come, that's fine too. Just, uh, you know, you, you come to PhD program and you can't find a topic. That's okay. There are other jobs to do. <laughs> there are lots of other ways to make positive impact in the world. And it, this isn't just a one way. So just try to enjoy and have fun. That, that's something that I had a lot of fun doing my PhD. I made sure that uh, I work out routinely. I became a rock climber during my PhD. That's something that I felt like 
it really takes my mind off of everything else going on in, in my life. Um, and that kept me healthy mentally and physically. So just trying to enjoy your life as this is the only time in your life, probably, uh, that you could just explore so many different things without much cost. So just go wild, try this and that, and just have fun. Well, I think that's perfect place to end. Thanks so much for coming on the show. This was this was a great conversation. Great. Thanks for having me, Sean. And uh, hope you can have a better dinner than taco spaghetti tonight. <laughs> have to change it up, yeah. <laughs>